0: Thank you. Thank you so much for your giving. We want to talk today about a subject that probably we don't talk enough about. It's the idea of the altar. I want to talk to you about why altars are so important. Why are altars so important? I, um, today, um, I have three very clear and specific goals. I'm not going to try to slip in the back door and suggest them. I want to tell you right up front what they are. I want us as a church to embrace the importance and step up the importance of the altars and the experience of the altar in all of our services. Number one. Number two, I want the altar to become a regular part of your home. I want you to know what it's like uh, to, and I want your children to know what it's like to every day. It doesn't have to be a long thing. In fact, I find that so often parents try to develop an altar system, um, ritual in their home, and they just make it so complicated that they wonder why two-year-olds get fidgety during it, you know. I tell you, it it is not a science to have an altar in the home. It is an art form. Because especially if you have children of different ages, you want to communicate to a two-year-old while at the same time communicating with a ten-year-old, and uh, sometimes it is better—it's—it's uh, it's better felt than told. Sometimes you get through an altar and you thought, well, that wasn't really good, but you've provided something for the children. You've provided an atmosphere in the home. I'm thankful that I grew up in a home where it was absolutely unthinkable, unthinkable, not because of ritual, not because of guilt, but it was so ingrained in us. There were, I, I don't remember days where we left Without praying together I don't remember times when we went to bed without praying together. It was the way we did it It didn't have to be a long thing, but it was a, it was an anchor point for us. The third thing, and I said the altar's at church, the altar's in your home, but I also want you as an individual. I want you to develop a regular altar time, a regular devotional life. And we preach about that often enough. But I think sometimes, especially when we get in a time crunch or we've we've got a you know, we've got a rush to get to work, we we tend to let our devotional time be the first thing that is set aside. You say, Pastor, I just I've I've got to get to work so early I know this is gonna make you wanna punch me, but remember, no touching. Um, <laughs> loved ones, let me tell you something. If you don't have an, a devotional time, it's not because you have to be at work so early, it's because you don't get up 15 minutes earlier. It's just a matter of importance. You, you get up early enough to take a shower, probably. You get up early enough to eat breakfast, probably. It's just a matter of what's important for you. Um, uh, you know, what are you going to do with the demands on your life? And you say, "Well, I'd love to have I'd love to have 15, 20 minutes more every morning. You've got it. You've just got to take it from something else. Um, I I, I, well, I shouldn't say that. I, let me put it this way. I know a lot of pastors require their staff members, require other pastors. To, to have time with the Lord as part of their daily work. I don't have any problem with a, a staff person spending time with the Lord during the work day, but I but I tell them this is not don't your don't do your devotion at work. Because nobody else can do their devotion at work. And we don't have the right to stand here and tell folks you need to spend time with the Lord if we get paid to do it. We have to establish that as a priority in our lives. I I remember my pastor uh, who has been with the Lord since uh, 1994, uh, but I remember it like it was yesterday. Every chance he got, he told me, Whatever you do, give your time to the altar. Give your time to the altar in church and give your time to the altar privately because whatever else you do right, it will be enhanced by the altar. Uh, It will be lessened if you don't have an altar. My mother and daddy, as I said, taught the same thing. Susanna Wesley who had, if I remember correctly, 23 children, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She had 23 children. Not all of them lived to adulthood, but she had 23 children, I believe it was. Um, She structured her life so that with all of those children, every child had their time during the day. Uh, John Wesley wrote a letter to his mom one time just before she died. And he said, oh, how, he said, oh, how I miss Thursday mornings at 10 o'clock. Because growing up, that was his time where every other child was to entertain themselves or to take care of each other. That was the time John Wesley had time with his mom for discipleship. And every child had that time. That's a, that's a heritage, isn't it? To be able to say, mom, I remember Thursday mornings at 10 o'clock with you where you poured your life into me, you say, well, how did someone like Susanna Wesley have her own altar time? Very simple. As the children got old enough to let the older children help, there was a signal. They all understand when mama sat in her chair and pulled her apron up over her head, leave her alone. She was talking to God. That was her time. Uh, It was said by one observer that one child began to cry and she wouldn't take her apron down. She said, Charles, is your sister uh, well? Yes, mama, she just fell. She's well. On another occasion, she says, John, is there blood? No, mama, there's not blood. And she stayed under that apron because she knew that to raise up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, she had to have her own time. Shut in with God. That's how important the altar is. Now, that's what I'm after. I want you to have an altar. I want your family to have an altar. Um, uh, I, I, mean, I mean, it can be a two-minute prayer together. Um, and, and we want to be sure that we understand in church how important the altar area is. Now, we're going to make four observations today. And, and I've given you this outline kind of to just point you in your own study But these are the four areas we want to touch. Um, I want you to understand that altars are markers of our life path. We're going to cover this in a moment. Um, Your spiritual heritage is traceable not by the churches you attend or the titles you hold. Your spiritual life is marked by the altars that you build. What is your connection point with God? Altars are the markers of our life path. Number two, altars are built of hard things. You never find a styrofoam altar. Uh, uh, I remember an argument breaking out among the leadership of, of a church that I attended because they were getting a new sanctuary, ordering new altars, and some wanted the altars... To be with a luxurious cushion on the top, and the old timer says altars ain't cushiony. Altars are built of hard things. They were saying it's important. They weren't. They weren't crazies. They were saying it's important for us to remember that seriously deadly business takes place at the altar. Uh, do you know that some churches? Are you guys hearing me? Okay, I, I'm. I'm just. I've got some congestion, and I. Um, I'm, I'm having a little trouble hearing what I'm hearing, so, um, or, or, or believing what I'm hearing. If, if I, <clears throat> bear with me. Um, some early churches, I'm talking about in the early days of the church, they, when, when churches began to be built, you know, it, it wasn't really for about 300 years that churches began to be built as churches. Churches worshiped in home and synagogues and public buildings, But only when the persecution lessened did they begin to build churches. And um, uh, the idea was, well, we can build a baptismal fount in the church. And some of the churches says, no, baptism is not valid unless it's done in cold running water, like a stream or a river. And they weren't crazy. What they were saying is when someone goes into the water, they need to realize, we, we heat the tank now, but they said they need to realize that the Christian life is hard. And going into the waters of baptism is to remind you that it's a cold world and it's hard. And water needed to be running so that it was symbolic of your sins being washed away and carried away. So... The, the the church has always had a battle of not only what we do, but how do we represent what's taking place um, in, in our lives. Um, hard, altars are built of hard things, number two. Number three, altars are places of violence. They are places of violence. And number four, altars are places of encounters with God. Now, let me go back. It's not the first altar, but let me go back to one of the earliest ones in Scripture, Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran, and, and now Haran was their was their first stop in their journey, uh, but that's it's a, another story. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's son all the possessions they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to to the place of Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring, I will give this land.' So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him." From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. It's interesting the power that an altar has. Um, Jacob in his journey fleeing from his brother fleeing from his family, trying to sort out the destiny of his own life, went to the place approximately where this altar was built. And when he slept, he had a vision of the throne of God and of angels on assignment. And many scholars believe that it was symbolic of a residual presence that had been established by... uh, Abraham when he built the altar in this area. Now, an altar today signifies something largely lost in our culture, but um, I want to give you uh, about four or five main ideas for you to think about as we work through this outline today. Um, This is in your notes. Number one, it's under key ideas. Altars can be literal or symbolic, but both are very real. That's why in acts of devotion to the Lord and in acts of rejecting, you remember we talked, our first two foundational stones are about embracing and rejecting. And a lot of times in scripture when something was being embraced, even if an altar had been forgotten, it was rebuilt. It was rebuilt. There's a significance that takes place where an altar has been built to the Lord. But there's also times in scripture where an altar had been devoted to sacrilege and to wickedness and the gods of this age. Paul said that uh, idols are, are, are connected with demons. And it was also not only the habit of the people of God to build an altar or rebuild an altar, but it was also an act of the children of God to tear down altars, and to desecrate places where the enemy had, had been worshipped. So altars can be literal or symbolic, but both are very real. What I mean by that is there we have no literal altar in this place, but we have an area that is dedicated to the idea of the altar. We have an altar area, even though there's not a piece of furniture up here that would be called an altar. It's not that we don't think the altar is important, It's purely for functional reasons. The way we do uh, worship, we let these steps double as altars, but an altar can be real or it can be symbolic. The second thing I want you to understand is that in modern Christianity, altars, if used at all, are often just symbolic. In actual experience, altars were places of profound encounter. And let me tell you this, in our Pentecostal churches, and I want it to be said of this church, it is our emphasis on the altar that has made our brand of Christianity so offensive to some other circles. I hope we have the best worship available. I hope that the preaching is at least tolerable and producing good fruit. I hope our programs are the best that we can absolutely produce, but a church rises and falls on what it does concerning the altar. How do people respond to the message? Is it it a place where people come to just pay their weekly allegiance? Is it a place where people come just to give a tip of the hat to God? Or is it a place where we come to encounter God? I... Somebody asked me. This was oh, a couple of years ago. Somebody um, we we had, we had talked about um, a topic that people had heard about, and they said, "Can you give me a DVD of the service?" And I said, "Yes," and uh, I sent it to them. And they said, "Boy, oh, that was a, that was a wonderful message." They they said, uh, "We've been looking for a church, and and uh, we just want to thank you." for sending us the, 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 message. And I said, uh, uh, well, you're welcome to join us. We hope to see you next Sunday. And they said, and, and it's nobody any of you would know. They said, well, thank you for the invitation, but I don't think we could ever attend your church. And um, I said, I said, uh, okay. I said, is there, is there something we did wrong? And they said, oh yes. They, they said, pastor, you preached an hour and five minutes. and, To me, if it takes you an hour and five minutes to say something, then you haven't prepared well. And I said, well, I understand. There's a case that can be made for that, I guess. But I said, you need to understand, um, our church is about an encounter. Our church is not about a service. Our church is about an encounter. And sometimes things go longer than they do at other churches. I said I'm not trying to defend myself. I am long-winded, um, but I said I want to tell you the the wind I produce is a good wind, and I think you need to you need to understand. I, hey, I, <laughs> I I was just trying to be funny. I wasn't eliciting your your agreement. But thank God you're smart, and. Uh, we talked about it and that person, they've since found a church and they're doing fine. But the bottom line is this, in their mind, I go to church to tip my hat. I go to church to just let the community know that I am gone for an hour on Sunday to go to church. See, I told him. I said, it takes me an hour to clear my throat. I said, uh, well, anyway, um, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that a long service is the will of God. I'm trying to say that we take the response, the encounter very, very seriously. Um, Abraham, this is what the president of Southeastern taught us. You know, I think the first sermon series I ever heard was a series on the life of Abraham when I was a freshman in college by Brother Cyril Homer, who was president of Southeastern, and he had a phrase that has never left me. That was way back in 1973. He said, Abraham taught us it's more important to build altars and pitch tents than to build tents and pitch altars. Now, that's hard to say, but he said it well in that British accent of his. He says, most churches that you men and women will have an opportunity to serve, will be more into building buildings than building altars. He says, most lives are more into building homes than building altars. He said, but if you get nothing else from this year at Southeastern, it was Bible college in those days, he said, I want you to understand the most important thing you can build in your own personal life, later when you marry and have family, In your own ministry, the most important thing you can build is the altar. Here's something else that, just bear with me here. Um, Jacob was renamed Israel after wrestling with God. You remember at the Brook Jabbok, when he was afraid of meeting his brother Esau, he divided his family up. I mean, he, he loved his family. He divided them into parts so that if Esau sought to get vengeance, at least some of his family could survive. He stayed behind and prayed and wrestled with a man, the scripture says. But as you read the story, you realize it's the angel of the Lord. It's God in the flesh that Jacob is wrestling with. And he says that, boy, I've seen God face to face. I've wrestled with God <clears throat> And what the Lord told him, he says, you have prevailed, Jacob. Jacob had been like a worm wiggling from one situation to another for years. I mean, he, 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 he began as a liar and cheater. Uh, we see him as a liar and cheater as a young man. We see him as a liar and cheater and as, as a husband, then as, as a father. And then now he's a grandfather. His whole life has been being a trickster. But he has had an encounter with God. And God says, your name shall no longer be Jacob. It shall be Israel. Now, the interesting thing is that he met, he, he left Jabbok the next morning, he met his brother and he's still called Jacob. He goes into the next chapter and he builds an altar, uh, El Elohe Israel, or the mighty God of Israel. And it didn't mean Israel the nation, Israel, was, they weren't a nation at that point, but it, he, he was saying, this is my God. This is an altar saying, this is my God. I'm, I'm going on record. This is my God. But he has trouble. It's just more of the same in the next chapter, in chapter 34. And finally, when you get to chapter 35, he goes back to Bethel where Abraham built his altar, where he had had that encounter with the Lord. Are you following me? And he builds an altar again. And God says, Jacob, you are no longer to be known as Jacob. You are to be known as Israel. And it wasn't just God giving it. He wasn't putting him in a witness protection program, changing his name. Names were so significant in those days. He said, Jacob, you know that I changed your name at Jabbok. You thought you were about to lose everything, including your life. And I appeared to you and I saved you. And I said, you are now Israel, not Jacob. And you go to Shechem and you build an altar. El Elohe, Israel, the God of Israel, you know that I have helped you. You know that I've touched you. But he says, you have gone right back to the old, same old problems you've always had. This is what he says in chapter 35. You've got to let your name be changed. It's one thing, loved ones, for us to have an encounter We'll fly to Toronto to have an encounter. We'll fly to Brownsville to have an encounter. I don't have any trouble with going to places where God is moving. I've done that myself. I don't have any problem with that. But if we're not careful, our encounter will only be a memorial to that experience. And it doesn't result in our lives being changed. He says, when are you going to start living like a prince instead of a trickster? When are you going to start living like a man of God instead of the same old thing you've been all your life? He says, you can say that I'm your God, but I'm telling you this is about your life changing. You're going to be Israel instead of Jacob. We've got to live it out. And even Jesus discovered the peace of God at an altar in Gethsemane. Now, let me touch on those four things that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, Altars are markers of our life path. Altars are built of hard things. Altars are places of violence. And altars are place of encounter. I'm just going to hit these things quickly, but some sources are there before you for you to search it out. Um, Jack Hayford, the first point is altars are markers of our life path. Jack Hayford I heard him preach one time about altars and he identified four characteristics of altars in the life of Abraham. He said, number one, there were altars of promise. The first altar we find Abraham building is at Shechem, Genesis 12, one through seven. This is what we read earlier. And he says, we all need to understand there are altars of promise. Places that we meet God where he says, He introduces himself to us, and he says, this is where I want you to go. This is how I want you to live. I will be your God if you will receive me. I will be your protector. I'll be your sanctifier. I'll be your provider. So we all know what it's like to to have an altar of promise. I remember when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, Sunday night, East Side Assembly of God, In Pensacola, Florida, I gave my life to Jesus. I did not know all that it meant. I did not know all that I would uh, experience, but I had a good upbringing and I knew that God was good and I knew that he loved me. And on that Sunday night, I understood that he made a promise to me, I will be your savior. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you all the days of your life. Till you're an old, old man, I will be with you and I will be your God. Boy, that was an altar of promise. And I'm so thankful that I met God at the altar. There are also altars of prayer and praise Uh, Abraham built another altar at Bethel where he he said, now I've not only received the promise, but I'm going to worship God. It's not going to be just a look back to the past, but it's going to be a look ahead. um, And God will be the receiver of my prayer and my praise. Thirdly, there are altars of progression. Chapter 13, we see him going back to Bethel. And in this passage, Abraham begins to mark his journey By moving from place to place, building altars as signposts of promise. Abraham is still moving. Hebrews put it this way. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. But as he progressed, and Hebrews 11 also says that he never received everything God had promised him. See, we, we talk about faith is what we use to get what we're after. But you read Hebrews 11, all of those people had one thing in common. They had moments of possession, but they died waiting for the fullness of God to manifest itself. And, and it does, and it has, and it will But he said, every place I go, I'm going to remember the altar of promise. I'm going to remember and experience the altar of praise, but I am going to let my life be marked by altars. I'm going from place to place, signposts of promise. And loved ones, I think the lesson we need to learn here is simply this. Your life, your testimony, your legacy, I love what? Tony Campolo's pastor said at someone's funeral, they said, most people die hoping they have a title. But he said, good, godly people die hoping they've had a testimony. Hoping there's a legacy, a pattern that their family can follow. And I can say this, not that I consider myself a great man of God or anything like that, but I'm chasing some great men and women of God. And every significant positive gain in my Christian life and ministry has been achieved at an altar. There's never been a victory in my life without an altar. The expression of that victory might be in a church or might be in a sermon or might be in whatever, but everything in my life that's worth latching to is directly tied to an altar. Directly tied to it, I think of the literal altar at my home church, and I'm giving you some examples of this. Our living room couch at my parents' home, I, 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 I'll, never, I'll never get away from the sacredness of that couch. Now, that, that couch served a lot of purposes. When guests came, they sat on the couch. When we watched television at night, we sat on the couch that couch had a lot of some of the best naps on sunday afternoon imaginable were on that couch but it was it was at that couch that i learned to pray and even when I was grown and pastoring my own church and had children of my own. The highlight of my trips home to mother and dad to visit with them and let the kids see Memo and papa. The, the highlight of it was to get there, get everybody in place, eat everything mom had cooked and um, lick the pan, get all of that kind of stuff taken care of, get the kids in bed, and my the highlight of of. That day was after everybody had gone to bed, I would go into the living room and I would spend, I'd just say, oh Lord, it just feels so good. It feels so good to just kneel at this couch. It feels so good to pray at this couch. And I remember for years I'd go in and I'd be tired and I'd say, Lord, I just wanna spend 10 minutes in your presence on this couch. And guys, invariably, almost without exception, what I thought was 10 minutes would turn into two, three hours just basking in the presence of God that seemed to be residual in that holy place. There's an old altar at Brownsville Assembly of God. They threw away when they remodeled the church. If you go to Brownsville Assembly of God Church, the old sanctuary is now just offices for the school but I remember going in there. I, I pasted off. I, I stood. It was at the entrance to a secretary's office. I told my kids, this is where I answered the call of God. Right here was an altar. Right here, I settled the question. This is where I said yes to the call of God for my life. And and nobody else seemed to appreciate the solemnity of that place except me, but I knew an altar had been there. Um one of the greatest altars I've ever experienced was under the piano at Camp Ambassador. It's a, it's a camp in Alabama. And I wasn't a camper. I was a grown adult. Um, but Ramona and I had been told we would never have any children. And, and I was so desperate for children and I was so aware of, that I needed to just pour this out to God that it was during men's retreat. And you don't usually pray for babies at a men's retreat. And there was all kinds of activity in the altar and everybody was praying for everybody, but I needed to be alone. I remember going under that piano and I went there because there was, we, we called it a modesty uh, curtain, I think in those days. There was, there was a, a, a curtain that was all around the, um, um, the piano for purposes of modesty for the person playing the piano. So I crawled under the piano where nobody could see me. And there, for the course of about an hour, I just poured out my heart to God. I poured out my heart to God. And under the piano at Camp Ambassador, God spoke to me and said the words that Eli the priest, that old poor example of a priest, said to Hannah, the mother of Samuel. The Lord spoke to me as clear as a bell. He said, go your way in peace. And the Lord God of Israel shall give you the petition that you have desired of him. I got up, I was covered in dust because nobody usually went to pray under there. I went up to the, to the uh, lunch hall. I called Ramona Collect and I said, honey, we are going to have a baby. And, and she said, well, she said, I always thought I'd be the one telling you that. But praise the Lord. And it, 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 we had no idea what it meant, but we began to thank God for the baby that was coming. And um, loved ones, approximately nine months from that night, we adopted our first child And then God just continued to bless us. And every time, Camp Ambassador is not Camp Ambassador anymore, but every chance I had until it was no longer a possession of the district, I went by. And when, when I could go in the chapel, I would go in and thank God for that altar. When it was gone, I Thank God for the altar anyway. You know what it's like to have an altar like that. I remember a pile of brush on Highway 43 in Alabama where I settled one of the most important questions of my life. You say, what was it? I don't need to go into that but I can tell you I couldn't carry it any longer and I pulled off the side of the road and I knelt down a few yards off the highway in a pile of brush and I said God I'm not willing to do what you're asking me to do but I'm willing to be made willing and at that moment God flooded my heart with a with a resolve that saved I think my life and saved my ministry that was an altar There's a secret place on Pensacola Beach I go back to every chance I get. And in each of the homes that we've had, Ramona and I, there's a place where I touch God. Loved ones, I'm trying to tell you, you have to find an altar. It may be varied. It may not even technically be an altar, but find yourself an altar. Find a place. David Wilkerson called it, (coughs) excuse me. He said, he says, he says, just as lovers have a place they call a, a tryst or a trist, it's, it's that English-American pronunciation. He said, he said, you need to have a place. You need to have a trysting or a trysting place with God. You need to have a place where like two lovers meet, God and his servant meet, and you settle the issues of life shut in with God. And then there were altars of possession. (coughs) These were places where victory is realized and the promise is fulfilled. Genesis 22, Abraham received the greatest revelation, arguably the greatest revelation that he had ever received. Um, It was when he was asked to sacrifice his son. And God gave him a revelation about the nature of God and his faithfulness that changed the face of Judaism and Christianity forever. Hebrews 11 I wrote down the wrong scripture it should be Hebrews 11 19 not Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40 I, I don't I just had the wrong scripture but in Hebrews 11 19 the scripture says at that moment Abraham received a revelation about the nature of God that changed his life forever well let's don't stop there though because we got to be done here in just a few minutes I want you to understand that altars are built of hard things now, first of all, they mark our life path. And guys, let me say one thing. The pastor Hard in me wants to caution you. Um, I think it's fine to go to significant places and honor what God has done. Justin and I went inside Charles Spurgeon's church and one of the highlights for me, and I think it meant a lot to Justin too, was be able to stand behind the pulpit where Charles Spurgeon preached. And I asked the Lord to let that anointing be upon us that it was upon Charles Spurgeon. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I, 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 I go to places and, and, I, and I think of those places and I ask for the solemnity of those places, the anointing of those lives to settle on me. But we need to be careful and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this to criticize anybody. Please understand that. I've got enough in my own life. I don't need to pull people down and criticize them as well. But there's a teaching, there's a tendency right now that we need to go to the graves of great men and women of God and somehow soak in their spirit. And, and, and I know the intention is good. The, the, the example in scripture is, is um, um, uh, Elisha, where even after he had been dead, And we know he'd been dead probably a year because his body had been reduced to bones. The way way most burials were done through most of Israel's history is you put a body in a tomb. You waited a year for all of the flesh to decay. And then you came and put the, the bones in an ossuary, in the boxes. That's what was true of most of Israel's history. So it had been at least a year because it was described as Elisha's bones. Uh, apparently not gathered, but long enough for the flesh to decay. You know the story. In a time of battle, men opened a tomb and, not wanting the enemy to desecrate the body of their brother and comrade in arms, they threw him in the grave, not realizing it was Elisha's grave. And when his dead body hit the bones of Elisha, he sprang up to life. And we praise God for that. Um, but, loved ones, that's being used as a, we're going to go to the graves of great men and women of God and just pray for their anointing to become ours. I think that's a dangerous thing. I don't think it's a wise thing. And you got to understand, Elisha was not a search for Elisha, it was a coincidence. It was, it was a revelation of power, not an invitation, you know, to receive a greater anointing. So I think we need to be careful. When, when we go to the graves of mighty men and women, when we go to the, the graves of people that we love, we don't go there to commune with them. And we don't go there to absorb from them. Now, I've, I know what it's like to go to my daddy's grave and just sit there and say, Daddy, I don't know what to do with this. And, um, and, and say, Lord, help me remember what my dad would say in a time like this. But I'm not looking for somebody to speak to me from the grave. I would be, I would be concerned <laughs> if I had someone speak to the grave to me. Um, understand that. But it goes back to that principle of, of residual power, of residual power. Uh, and there's more I could say. I don't, again, I don't mean to be critical. But let me go into the next thing. Altars are built of hard things. Altars were built of stones. They were not allowed to be built of wood. Um, uh, in certain circumstances, they had to be stones. Um, and, the, and, and in some circumstances, they weren't allowed to be cut stones. They were to be stones rough surfaced. And stones with things that if you went upon the altar, it would, it would stick you. It would protrude. Altars are a reminder of our weakness and our total dependence upon him. Now, can I tell you this? Not not everybody's going to be able to grasp this and I'm not talking down to you when I say this, but you've got to be of a certain spiritual maturity to understand what I'm about to say. Altars will often offend our sensibilities. Altars will often seem incomprehensible to us when we get there because we will say God could not possibly be requiring this of me. I, I I never read the story of God requiring Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice without being offended. This is not the way God works. This does not make sense. This does not this does not fit God's DNA or does not fit God's profile. Loved ones, God had forbidden child sacrifice. That's why he was driving the Canaanites out of the land. When you read the story of the Old Testament, the thing that God said, no more will I tolerate you, is they were sacrificing their children. And the thing that caused Israel and Judah to cross the line was not their idolatry and all of their other stuff. It was when they began to sacrifice their children. That's why we need to take abortion very seriously in this culture. You see, and and for God to say, I want you to take the life of your own son, it doesn't fit any grid whatsoever. But beyond my understanding, beyond my explanation, I can't sit here and defend God All I can say is two things. God sometimes requires of us things that we do not understand, not because it violates his nature, but because he is doing something beyond our ability to grasp. God would have never allowed Abraham to sacrifice his son. But God was using the example of the pagan nations around him requiring the most unimaginable thing and he was using it as a venue to reveal his true nature to Abraham. And we say, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. The problem is you don't know it at the time. You say, well, I'm I'm mature enough, I can handle it. Then why in the name of all that is holy did Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, on his altar of sacrifice, why did he ask a question and it wasn't poetic? My God, Papa was the word he used. Papa, Papa, why have you forsaken me? It was a very real thing. Jesus wasn't caving into emotions. Jesus wasn't, wasn't misunderstanding the application. The unthinkable was happening at the altar. But the unthinkable needed to happen for us to be redeemed. It was, it was unlike God's DNA, it was unlike God's pattern to slay the innocent. And it created such a mystery that Jesus momentarily saying, Lord, why is this happening? There's no wrong in my hands. There's no sin in my heart. But Jesus regathered his composure. And this is what he says. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? No. So not my will, but your will be done. Altars are built of hard things, loved ones. Sell that business. But Lord, that's my security in that relationship. But Lord, that's my joy. Take that step of faith. Lord, that's not good business. Oh, I want to tell you some of the hardest things imaginable will happen at the altar. But I can also tell you this. I know this about altars. If you'll give it time you will find that what you have bought with your obedience is far greater than what you've been asked to give up. Far greater. Altars offend our sensibilities and altars require sacrifice. My mom, guys, I'm trying to quit here. I still got about seven minutes, but my mom, whenever my mom was going through a tough time and she would just disappear, I don't mean like run off, but When we just didn't know where she was, if she had been going through a tough time, I knew where to find her. I could drive to the old Sacred Heart Hospital. It's now Sacred Heart is a big hospital in Pensacola, multi-million dollar complex. And but when I was born there, it was it was built in the I think 1912, and it's still a historic landmark. But it's just an old building. Looks like something from the from a century ago, my mom would park in a little parking lot. The hospital is long since, not the hospital. Now it's a school, but she parks under a balcony and that's where she settled her issues with God. And, and I, I, I knew, I think I was the only one until she died that knew why she went there. And I'm not trying to be emotional, But she says, when you were nine years old and you were in surgery and they said, he's not coming out of surgery probably. She said, "Um, I was told I was probably going to lose my baby. Didn't tell anybody. She, She only told me about it years later. She said, I went out on this balcony and I called and I wrestled with God. And she said, I realized that God was asking me something like he'd never asked me before. And he said, Eunice, do you trust me enough to commit your baby boy into my hands? She said, Lord, he's always been in your hands. He said, you know what I'm talking about. Can you love me if I take him home now? Can you love me if there's a plan beyond your understanding? Can you let this balcony be an altar of sacrifice? in which you say, like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust. I was a teenager when she told me this. She says, I bowed with bitter tears, dripping through the grade down to the parking lot below. And she said, I looked down, I couldn't look up, but I said, Lord, be it unto me according to your word. The will of the Lord be done. God is good and everything he does is good. I commit it to your hands. And she said, a peace unlike any peace I'd ever known flooded my heart. I walked in and she said, they came into the room and said, it's touch and go. By the next day, they said, he'll be okay. Okay. She, I said, so you're saying that God was gonna kill me unless you could say yes? She said, oh no. She said, this, it, this wasn't a game. This wasn't God saying, if you can't surrender, I'll take your son. But if you can surrender, I'll let him live. She said, I walked into the hospital with no assurance. I had not just struck a deal with God. I didn't know if you were going to live or die. She says, but I tell you what I did know. I walked into that hospital. Knowing that God loved me beyond my wildest expectations and dreams. And whether you lived or died, I was in the hands of a God who loves us all more than I can imagine. See, loved ones, we think we prevail when we, when we wheel and deal with God. But remember the three Hebrew children I've talked about so much? They didn't say God is able and God, because we're having faith, God will get us out of this. You remember what they said? God is able to deliver us and we believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to stop worshiping and loving him. You see, most of us in our relationship with God, most of us in the altar stop when we've got a good hand of cards when we have negotiated a good deal. But I'm telling you at the altar, at the altar, there is a place that few find. Hear me, it's a place few find, but it's a place where we can know him like we've never known him before and trust him like we've never trusted him before. Altars number three are a place of violence. At altars, blood is spilled, death occurs and fire consumes flesh. I want to tell you, altars are not a place to go to get your boo-boo tended to. Now, in one sense it is. We bring our needs to the altar. We bring our sickness to the altar. We bring our lives to the altar. But loved ones, the altar is not a cure-all. The altar is a give-all. The last thing I wanna say is that altars are places of special encounters with God. I believe the days are coming in which every believer needs to know and experience the Lord for themselves. Altars are where God does his most obvious work. Loved ones, that's why I tell you to come to the altars even if it's for five minutes. Develop a church culture where we don't listen and leave but we listen and come. We listen and receive. You say, Pastor, if we all did that, there wouldn't be room for everybody. Then make your seat an altar. Quit treating the service, if you do this, as an hour and a half of entertainment, but now I got stuff to do. I'm being brought to the altar of Almighty God. I, I, I wish I could find the article and the picture, but it's long lost in my files. There was an altar, or excuse me, a sculpture that was made. I don't even remember the culture. It was, um, it was in a remote place. And the only reason people seemed to go to that town was to see the sculpture. It was renowned. And the, when people got there, when people got there, it was almost always the same response. I've seen many sculptors better than this one. It was a sculpture of Jesus on the cross, but it was off balance. the Christ was ugly it, it, it was like he was leaning in an odd position and the initial response of almost everybody was that's the most hideous thing I've ever seen it, it's 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 the phrase was often used it's grotesque and people would look at it and the guide would say, you need to find the right angle. And and people would look, they'd walk around and they'd look, they'd look from behind it, they'd back off. And every time the tour group would say, I've been robbed. This is not worth coming to see. But somebody in the group would finally figure it out. They would go to the foot of the cross and kneel And when they knelt and looked up, everything made sense. That was the angle that the grotesque cross became the beautiful cross. And loved ones, what we need to learn in Christianity is that the cross of Jesus will always look grotesque when we view it from our perspective. The altars will always look grotesque when we view it from our perspective. But if we can discipline ourselves to come to him with a heart of full surrender, I want to tell you what has become grotesque in our lives just might suddenly become beautiful. Father, we're out of time today, and we ask you to help us in Jesus' name (coughs) to know what to do with this. Thank you for the altar. You said, I will meet you at the altar Altars are violent. Altars are bloody. Altars are made of hard things. But it's at the altar that we meet you. I've gone to great lengths to say that an altar can be any place. But I'm talking about this altar today. I'm talking about the altar of this moment. Every one of us has a different need, every one of us has a different burden perhaps. But every one of us are in need of the altar. And I ask you to show yourself in that grotesque statue, that bloody altar. Show us the revelation of who you are so that it might change the way we live. In Jesus' name,